and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent. Radical and compassionate, we never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Welcome to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. I'm Karuna Jagger, and I'm your host. We've had a little break between episodes, and I'm coming back to you from my home, because for the last three weeks now, we've been social distancing to slow the spread of COVID-19. And even though the world feels quiet these days, I'm recording from my bedroom to muffle the squeak of the garbage trucks outside because they are still performing essential services, along with our healthcare workers who are literally putting their lives at risk to save the lives of others. There are so many good people doing heroic acts within a troubled and sometimes broken system. COVID-19 reveals many of the cracks in our healthcare system, and it reveals the way that science can get politicized and co-opted, not in the best interests of public health. And so I'm really pleased to have Michael Halpern join me in conversation today, talking about science and democracy. Michael's the deputy director at the Union for Concerned Scientists Center for Science and Democracy, where he works to promote solutions that ensure government decisions are fully informed by scientific information and that the public understands the scientific basis for those decisions. It's so timely and important. Thank you for joining me today, Michael. It's really great to be with you. And I'm also in my home, like the rest of the country, who aren't out there on the front lines doing this work to protect us. And certainly I'm trying to figure out personally what kind of information to share with my parents about how to keep themselves safe and how we as as a society can give voice to the scientific experts that are out there who are trying to determine what the risks are that we face and the different types of protections that people need to keep themselves safe and as well as racing to come up with safe and effective and universal cures to the coronavirus and and the related impacts that it'll have across the country. It's such an important point. This is a rapidly evolving public health crisis, but even with things like breast cancer, there's always emerging data and emerging science. And so it's important balance in terms of identifying how solid our information is. I love that your center's name is the Center for Science and Democracy. And at Breast Cancer Action, I often talk about our work as democratizing the science, both so people can make informed health decisions, but also so that our laws and regulations are following sound science. Why don't we just begin by you talking about that connection between science and democracy, which is not an intuitive link for many people. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I started working at this intersection of science and democracy about 15 years ago. And that was during the George W. Bush administration when there were people at the Department of Health and Human Services who were 
putting up information on government websites that trumpeted the widely discredited claim that there's a link between breast cancer and abortion. And so we've seen intersections of politics and science for you know, for many years and dating well beyond you know, George W. Bush. About a year after I came to Breast Cancer Action in 2012, there was a big kerfuffle when Susan G. Komen, the world's largest breast cancer organization, decided to stop funding any grants to Planned Parenthood. And that brought up an upswell of all these claims around breast cancer and abortion again, and the, and the supposed link between the two. It'd be great to hear you share more about what the evidence is for people who may have heard that there is a link. Yeah. Yeah. So all of us are deluged by information on a daily basis. And what we need are tools to distinguish between what is credible and what is not credible. The government does play a really important role in informing the public and helping set the terms for public discussion and debate. It's really important for the government to get things right. People are now depending on the CDC to give them current information about the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, people are equally dependent on other government agencies to help them understand environmental and public health threats that they face. Community health agencies and states and local public health authorities all depend on accurate information from the federal government to be able to do their jobs. And so it's important for there to be safeguards in place that ensure that if the federal government puts out bad information, that it can be corrected quickly and to ensure that scientists are able to put out information in the first place regardless of whether or not that information is politically convenient or inconvenient to the people who are in power. There's currently legislation called the Scientific Integrity Act, which would protect the rights of scientists to communicate publicly about their work and would prohibit the manipulation and suppression and distortion of information in a way that is not science-based. And that kind of legislation think will create more barriers between science and politics and make it more difficult for this manipulation to occur. What we're talking about is, in the case of breast cancer, how women's health gets politicized from abortion to breast cancer and, and the real world impact that has. You know, there is a role for the government in curating the best science in some select situations, right? Yeah, really, as much as possible, our goal is to remove political control over who gets information and democracy and to develop and protect the ability of the government to develop public protections that are fully reflective of what the science says. And science is a political football because everybody wants science to be on their side. You tend to champion the information that supports your policy position and try to bury the information that doesn't. And that reduces, and if you're able to do that as a policymaker, it reduces a lot of accountability and it makes it more likely that the decisions are going to serve a narrow band of interests and not serve the public. We can't really make 
fully informed decisions about public health and safety and the environment without access to the best available scientific information. And that's true on a societal level, and it's also true on an individual level. And each and every one of us is dealing with personal decisions right now about how to keep ourselves and our families and our communities safe during this pandemic. And we really need to hear directly from the experts. What do they know? What are they trying to find out? And where are they, you know, where can we expect to go from here? A lot of people have been really concerned watching the daily press briefings, the way President Trump is contradicting the experts about COVID-19. You've written extensively about this, Michael. What are you seeing right now that most concerns you? Well, you know, the United States should be one of the most prepared nations to deal with a pandemic. We should be able to protect not only our own population, but also provide good scientific support to other countries. We have thousands of epidemiologists who work for the CDC and for universities nationwide. And I think there is good news that's out there. You know, the, the, the scientists are really working at an unprecedented speed to solve this crisis. We had Chinese scientists who had the virus's genome sequenced within days. Scientists around the world are racing to develop rapid tests and eventual vaccines. But we also need to note that every single aspect of this response is influenced by political decisions and decisions that have been made not only now, but also in the past. So let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by that. First of all, I know that doctors in a New York hospital are using antibodies that are coronavirus antibodies from the bodies of people who have recovered to save people who are currently sick. But gay men in New York can't volunteer to provide those antibodies because they're prohibited from giving blood by an outdated FDA regulation. The administration could choose to suspend that. They have not yet done so. Another example, there's a leading researcher at the National Institutes of Health who wants to use mice that have lungs that were developed with human fetal tissue to test different coronavirus therapies. But last year, the Trump administration banned the use of fetal tissue in medical research and has refused to allow the NIH researcher to move forward in this work. And so all there are you know, countless areas where the policies around the use of science and policymaking and the use of science itself have a direct impact on our ability to respond to public health threats like this. It's interesting. It makes me think it's it's not directly related to the research side, but the implementation. It makes me think about with the Affordable Care Act, there are really two areas that the coverage recommendations aren't based on the evidence. And one is abortion and the other is breast cancer and mammography screening. And it's, you know, two women's health examples of, I think, the same essential point that politics is always playing a role. This is where the FDA experts need to lead. And the problem is that when the president is putting too much faith in one particular drug that is unproven, it has led to a rush on that drug, which makes it has made it unavailable to 
people who actually need that drug to treat diseases like lupus. And so we shouldn't be rushing from potential cure to potential cure when it's not proven. What we need to do is follow a accelerated scientific process to develop proven medicines that can treat or prevent infections related to COVID over a long period of time for a broad swath of people. And the FDA has to follow a evidence-based process in developing those treatments. I want the FDA to make decisions about the blood pressure medication that my mother takes based on evidence, not based on how well that drug will sell or how much I want that drug to work. Someone wants that drug to work. And so I think it's really important for people in leadership positions not to oversell what a particular therapy might do because they want it to be so. It's a really good point. Seen is over the years, the FDA has moved to faster and faster accelerations. And in the case of cancer, the majority of new cancer treatments that are approved by the FDA have shockingly not been shown to help people live longer. And so it's appearing as if the you know metric for success is just number of drugs approved rather than efficacy of those drugs and actual lives saved. And I think, you know, there has been historically this tension between speed and safety and efficacy, but I think we can both push for speed and uphold the highest standards of safety and efficacy. And that's where we'll really see the best innovation. Yeah, certainly there's healthy tension there. And every five years or so, the Congress reauthorizes the two laws that govern how how FDA evaluates medical devices and how they evaluate drugs. And there are certainly a lot of lobbyists for the pharmaceutical industry that are in Washington to influence that process to their benefit. And a lot of consumer advocates like UCS and like Breast Cancer Action and others who are there to represent the consumer and ensure that the public interest is served as well. Those are, I think, really important conversations that need a diversity of voices so that the system does serve everybody and is certainly not perfect. You know, you made the point that science is a political football, that we can find a study to support anything. Yeah, well, so a lot of people would assume that there's kind of this straight line between science and policy, that the experts go in and that policymakers make decisions based on the evidence they've received. But the reality is that it's a lot more complicated than that. And people need to be involved in those processes uh, every step of the way. So scientists who work for the government to be able to consider all of the best available information when they make recommendations and when they make decisions, whether that's on drug approvals, whether that's on chemical policies, whether that's on air pollution standards, scientists should be able to consider a wide diversity of science and figure out where the weight of the evidence is. Certainly, you can find lots of studies that you can take out of context. You can find lots of data that you can misrepresent to push your policy, your preferred policy forward. But it's when scientists develop air pollution standards, for example, they're looking at thousands of studies and they're trying to figure out where the weight of the evidence is. 
uh, what are the most influential studies? What are the weakest studies? How do they figure out um, how to weigh different types of evidence as they figure out what recommendations to make about what acceptable air pollution standard should be or about whether a chemical is safe for humans at a certain level. And I know one of the things that both of our organizations have worked on is what we've called the secret science rule, the quote, strengthening transparency and regulatory science, which sounds great, but unfortunately, like many bills, you know, the name is misleading. We started work on that in the summer of 2018 and submitted formal comments, but I know that you've done a lot of work on that, and this could be a good time to talk about what the secret science rule is and why it matters. Right. And some people might call it the secret science rule, but we call it the censored science rule or the restricted science rule. What the EPA is proposing is that all studies that the agency uses to make decisions have to have their data be fully publicly available before those studies can be used. Now, that sounds like a great idea, but then you learn that most of the studies that EPA uses to protect public health are medical studies, are public health studies that use personal identifying information, that use patient records, that use other types of information that either can't be anonymized or would put patient privacy at risk. So effectively, what would happen is that thousands of scientific papers, many, many data sets would be removed from consideration by EPA, and all that would be left would be industry studies and other types of limited information, and that would make it less likely the EPA would would be able to effectively protect public health and the environment. It's really throwing a giant monkey wrench into the whole process by which different pollution standards are based and into the process by which EPA develops scientific assessments. It's such a cynical move to pretend that this rule would uphold transparency and integrity when really it would just undermine the agency's ability to protect public health and safety. According to the proposed rule, any environmental health scientist whose research could be used to protect public health would have to break ethical and legal standards of privacy if they want their studies to be included in the EPA's rulemaking. It's just an artificial conundrum. The administration is disregarding scientific and medical experts. Some of our listeners may have submitted public comments themselves a few years ago, and yet it seems like this is the second time through for this proposed rule. Tell us more about the history of the censored science rule, Michael. So Scott Pruitt, former EPA administrator, he put forth this proposal in 2018. There were 600,000 comments that were submitted as part of the response to this proposal from all kinds of scientific organizations, from advocacy groups like the Union of Concerned Scientists and Breast Cancer Action, and by concerned um, people all over the country. And the many, many issues that were raised by people as part of that comment period sent EPA back to the drawing board in some ways because they had to respond to all the substantive issues that were raised. And so initially the agency wanted to fast track this. They wanted to get this done as quickly as possible so that they could restrict the types of science that were used in the rules that they were putting forward. But the immense public response meant that they had to go back to you know had to go back and rework it. 
at the you know, earlier in 2020, they released what they call the supplemental proposal, which builds on the original proposal. And unfortunately, instead of going in in the right direction, withdrawing it, they decided to expand its reach and make it worse. So not only would it apply to all of the science that is done to support rules and regulations, but it would apply to all of the science that informs EPA scientific assessments of chemicals and other scientific products that EPA puts out. And so uh, unfortunately, this they took a really terrible proposal and made it worse. And now we all have to comment again and explain why this contravenes EPA's mandate. So now we get to tell people how to submit their public comment to the EPA. They can look at the ucsusa.org website, the Union of Concerned Scientists website. Anyone can sign up on your website, and there's also a way to take action at the ucsusa.org website. Folks can also submit their public comment anytime before May 18th, that's the deadline, through our website at bcaction.org forward slash censored science. If you go to our website, bcaction.org, there's an easy take action button, and we've got you started with a draft that you can personalize. I also think it's important for us to engage political candidates on these issues, to ask them, how are they going to use science in the decisions that they make? Uh, What are they going to do to ensure that agencies like the EPA and the CDC are strong and effective and the scientists who work for those agencies are going to be able to tell the truth to the American public? Uh, And if we engage candidates for Congress and candidates for president, Uh, In those conversations, we're going to go a long way to getting the commitments that we need to improve the use of science in protecting public health and the environment and creating ultimately a better quality of life for all of us. Is there anything else that you want to add? Consider careers in public service. Agencies need really smart, talented, motivated, excited people to fill jobs and to help the public health agencies and the environmental agencies advance their public interest missions. And so as young people are considering their career paths, they should really look to government service as a calling. I want to remind everyone, May 18th is the deadline, so please make sure to make your voice heard and let the EPA know what you think about the censored science rule. Thank you. It's been really great to chat with you. Well, this conversation makes clear why the work of watchdogging is more important than ever. Organizations like ours that don't take corporate funding so that we can always put public health first. Even though breast cancer may not be the top concern for most people right now, it hasn't gone away despite this pandemic. There are people finding lumps and navigating a diagnosis, managing the impact of long-term treatment, facing the end of their lives that has nothing to do with COVID-19. And our work is fundamentally about breast cancer, but the impact is bigger than breast cancer in many ways. How we respond to the pandemic is important because this is going to shape how we build our future world, a more just and healthy world. Our work is fundamentally about breast cancer, but the impact has always been bigger than breast cancer in many ways. It shouldn't take a pandemic to prioritize public health. 
Now is the time, right now, when COVID-19 has stopped business as usual, for us to begin the essential work to restart and rebuild a more just and healthy world. I hope that each of you stay healthy. I appreciate the steps that everyone is taking to protect our loved ones and friends, whether they're in cancer treatment, are older, or have other risk factors. Shelter in place is one important way to protect the most vulnerable members of our communities, but our work doesn't stop there, and we will continue to fight for health justice as long as it takes. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories, share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org because together we can do something besides worry.